Okay. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Sorry, I was just, I, I can't really do two things at once. I'm awful bad at that. Uh, so I was just making sure everybody who was attending here live has the link to actually hear what I'm saying, else eventually this will get dull, um, I would imagine, <clears throat> to stand around and <laughs> look at my character without being able to hear me. Um, so, uh, welcome. Welcome, everybody. I'm going to keep broadcasting it, by the way. Oh, you're, you're broadcasting as well? Well, no, I'm going to broadcast the link over my oh, head. Oh, the link, yeah, yeah, basis. yeah, that's good. That's good, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so hopefully people will be able to see that as well. Um, uh, but, uh, very good. I, so I w- want to start by thanking everybody. Oh, yeah, uh, just, uh, to make sure everybody, uh, understands. Normally, of course, I open the mics for everybody. Um, tonight, today is going to be different. We're not going to be, we don't need to have any tactical discussion because we're not going anywhere tonight. Um, so since I'm going to be giving a talk tonight, it's just a little simpler so that people don't have to worry about their own mics and everything. Um, so. You should be getting audio from me now. Uh, uh, if you're not, there's a problem. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, hi, I'm Corey Olson, uh, the Tolkien Professor. I am delighted to come to my uh, second Ales and Tales gathering. This is our second combined Ales and Tales and Mythgard Monday uh, gathering. So wonderful to see so many of you. Um, and uh, I am uh, uh, I am I am very honored to be back as we have done before. We are. Do- oh, and first I want to uh, uh, thank the band that was just playing. I uh, I have gotten too little uh, uh, into the Lotro music scene, I think, and I have been really enjoying the opportunity uh, to see and hear uh, the the music here at Ales and Tales. Uh, in fact, I was particularly glad you guys uh, you guys played one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite Lonely Mountain Band songs uh, there. Um, so I was, uh, I, I was, I was, I was particularly pleased. Um, so thank you very much, uh, for that really fun introduction. So, as I said, I'm Corey Olson. I have been invited here to talk, and I'm decided I'm, we're going to talk tonight, um, about, again, another topical thing. Um, this is the second time we have gotten together. We've had combined Ales and Tales and Mythgard Monday, uh, and both times we have coincided with, uh, an interesting event or major holiday in uh, the uh, in the world of Middle Earth. Last time it was for the uh, Valentine's Day date of uh, Gandalf's resurrection, and this time it is for uh, uh, the Gondorian New Year celebration. We're a few days late for that. That was last week, but uh, uh, but nevertheless, we're still here to observe the Gondorian New Year. Um, and, uh, you know, the day that the ring was destroyed, uh, and the war with Sauron ended. Um, and, uh, so in, on the theme of that charming moment, um, one of our kin members was, uh, teasing me a minute ago that, you know, the cracks of doom is like an obviously festive occasion, uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, you know, to talk about at a party. Um, but, um, anyway, we, um, uh, I, I, I wanted to talk about the Crags of Doom because it is a solemn event, but of course a very joyous one in the history of Middle-earth. But I want to talk about sort of what went into it, what was going on at the Crags of Doom. Uh, the, the title of my talk is The Crags of Doom. What were they thinking? I want to be thinking about both Sauron and Frodo. What was going on there at the Cracks of Doom? Um, 
And the first thing I would like to start off uh, sort of basically addressing some general questions, which I, I, I think kind of gets me into uh, the overall topic that I, you know, the, sort of the, the, the stuff that I really want to want to discuss. The first question is I want to address, and I'm sure some, some of you have probably heard me address this before. Um, uh, others of you will have heard other people address it. But nevertheless, I wanted to start off with what is to me the, 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 the sensible beginning uh, and that is addressing the question that so many people ask, why didn't they just fly the ring to Mount Doom on an eagle? Because I think that that's, uh, um, that's an important question. At least it's important to know how to answer that question. Um, uh, and especially if you find that question as irritating as I have often found that question. Um, and the way I usually talk about it is to say that there are really, there are two um, ways to answer that question. One is what I call the answer from within, and the other is the answer from without. That is from within the world of the story or from without the world of the story, from the point of view of the author and the readers. Um, the answer from within really there is sort of in two parts. The first reason why they didn't fly the ring to Mount Doom is that it wouldn't have worked. It's not nearly so clever a plan as people uh, as people often sort of make out. Um, an eagle, of course, Sauron can see coming. If you yes, the eagles are fast, but if you think that an you know an eagle is going to fly uh, into Sauron's airspace without him noticing, that's kind of ridiculous. And it's not just that the eagle has to be intercepted, uh, you know, by a flying wraith. All Sauron has to do, remember the Mount Doom is not an open caldera as the, uh, the, I think rather puerile YouTube videos on this subject, uh, depict. It's not just a matter of doing a fly over the, the active volcano and dropping the ring in from a height. The cracks of Doom are, you know, it's, 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 it's a street and tunnel that goes into the inner, inner, a heart of the mountain, um, so you somebody could f- could fly to Mount Doom, but then they'd have to disembark from the eagle and walk into the cracks of Doom and get to the fire. And th- so Sauron doesn't need to send wraiths to intercept the eagles. All Sauron has to do is get his own butt over to the cracks of Doom, stand there in the doorway with his arms crossed, and say, "I don't think so. You're not getting in here." So it really uh, that th- this is why the whole emphasis was on secrecy that. Sauron must not uh, be able either to observe what they're doing or guess what they have in mind because it would be phenomenally easy for him to obstruct it if he got any if he had any inclination if he had any guess at what they were actually planning to do and that's one of the things we're going to that I wanted to set up because we're going to come back to that later on the emphasis in the book is not just that he doesn't see which direction they're coming from but that he has absolutely no idea that they're trying to destroy the ring at all he doesn't even think that that's on the table so, um, and again, that I think is, 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 is really important, um, for, uh, uh, for understanding kind of the context of that. And it is to me the number one reason why the Eagle plan really would not work. Um, the second thing is sort of a little bit, um, a little bit, uh, kind of broader from a, from a lore perspective, um, in thinking about like, would the Eagles do this? You know, is this something that would even be kind of permitted within the world itself? Um, by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, the Eagles have been pretty clearly established in Tolkien's thoughts as the messengers of the Valar. Gwai here might seem to act as a kind of a free agent, uh, in the Lord of the Rings. 
Um, but it's not at all obvious to me that he is. I mean, the mere fact that he is the one who retrieves Gandalf and brings him to Lothlorien, um, and he's... The eagles are connected. Um, you know, the, the eagles of Manway are connected with Manway. I say in the time of the Lord of the Rings because it's relatively clear that in The Hobbit that's not the case. In The Hobbit, the eagles are depicted as if they were merely birds, as if they, you know, they're, they're large birds of prey, you know, often cruel, uh, but enemies of goblins. Um, you know, they're not especially, although they play a miraculous role in The Hobbit, they're not themselves necessarily miraculous. By the time we get to the published Silmarillion, we see them very firmly um, uh, uh, entrenched in that role. And, uh, uh, and as I say, even by The Lord of the Rings, we sort of see that. So basically, to, in my mind, the question of why didn't they just fly, you know, use an eagle to fly the ring to the mountain um, also invokes the question of, why don't the Valar just step in and take care of things, right? Elrond makes that kind of peculiar-sounding comment at uh, at the council, right? When they say, when when uh, I can't remember whether it was a Restor or a Galdor, I always get them confused in the Council of Elrond. I can't remember which one of them said it, but one of them says, you know, we have two options, right? To to take it over the sea, uh, you know, to hide it forever or unmake it. Like we could take it over the sea. Um, and Elrond says, no, no, uh, uh, those who are over the sea wouldn't take it, right? It's um. It's not going to happen. Um, and it sort of seems like, well, gosh, actually, you know, come to think of it, I thought that was a good plan, actually. Um, uh, you know, if you just send it to Valinor and tell Sauron, go ahead, you know, go find it. Um, you know, uh, good luck there. That's, um, uh, you know, again, it seems like a pretty good plan, but the Valar wouldn't take it. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle-earth, um, says Elrond. Um, and that policy seems to hold. They'll help, but that's not the way in which they help. The Valar seem to have adopted this policy. Uh, you know, even even in the War of Wrath, they don't seem to have come over. Um, they've not been directly interfering in that way um, in the affairs of Middle-earth. Now, do we see the Valar influencing things? Do we see the Valar involved uh, in the story? Yeah, I do think we see the Valar involved in the story, and that's sort of a... a a talk for another time, but not in that way. They're not just going to come in and destroy Sauron. They're not just going to come in and take care of everything. There's a reason why the peoples of Middle-earth are supposed to handle it. Um, of course, Gandalf's intervention himself is the primary example of the intervention of the Valar, not only uh, his coming in the first place, but his being sent back, as we discussed last time I was here, um, was, uh, was, was a direct intervention on the part of the Valar. So, um, so again, they, 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 they do act, but again, not in that way. They're not just going to come and handle everything. For good or ill, it belongs to Middle Earth. It is up to the people of Middle Earth, um, to, to do it. So, and, so the whole eagle plan just doesn't really jive with that either. Those are my two within the book answers. Um, the answer from without is very simple. And that is, as stories go, the we've discovered the ring of power. We're just going to take an eagle. Uh, uh, it'll take about half a chapter for me to describe the eagle's uh, trip over to uh, to Mordor, and then they drop it in, and that's the end of the story. Um, that's a crappy story. Um, it's just really not a very interesting story 
at all, really. And that's, in my mind, sort of the reason from without. When people start, and of any story and with anything, it doesn't have to be the Eagles and the Lord of the Rings, um, whenever people start saying things like, well, this is what should have happened, or, uh, or you know, the, the story, you know, would have been different if it had, if this had happened instead. Well, okay, yeah, the story would have been different, um, and it would have been worse. Uh, you know, the storyteller chose not to make that happen because he wanted a better and more interesting story, um, and that's kind of his business. Um, so... I think uh, I, 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 it's from without. I mean, again, if he'd wanted to tell that story, he would have told that story, and he didn't want to tell that story, and that's kind of that's kind of his prerogative. By the way, I, I meant to mention this before I began. Um, I can take questions if you have comments on what I'm saying or questions that you would like to uh, to ask connected to what I'm talking about. Um, the best way to do that, uh, um, you can theoretically uh, send me a tell in the game, but it's going to be harder for me to track that. Um, in the GoToWebinar, on your GoToWebinar control panel, um, there's a little uh, chat box, little comment, uh, questions box that you can type in, and I'll, I'll get that there, and that puts them all together in one place, um, which uh, makes that a little bit easier. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um yeah, I, I, just a couple questions on this. Uh, uh, Jeff Hanvey was asking, would it have been possible for the One Ring to be destroyed in any old lava pit? Could they have carried it to, say, Erebor, or some other dwarven stronghold with an active lava pit, and tossed the ring in? Um, uh, I, uh, um, I, well, I mean, I don't know. That's not really addressed. On the one hand, um, when Gandalf is talking to Frodo in Bag End, he kind of makes it sound like it's the qu- it's the quantity of heat that matters, right? That that Frodo's little uh, little fire wouldn't melt even ordinary gold, um, you know. But uh, you know the 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 fires, you know, not even in a in a, in a, in a dwarvish forge would the fires get hot enough. Um, you have to throw it into the mountain, but. So on the one hand, Jeff, it does sound like a purely quantitative thing. Like if you could, if you could contrive to get the heat up high enough, uh, it would, it would work. But I don't think so. Um, I, I, I don't believe that it's really just a quantitative thing. Um, because I, that would seem to be a sort of a more obvious plan, right? I mean, like if all there is just is to find any old volcano, you would think that Mount Doom would be literally the worst volcano in the world to find, right? I mean, that, that would be, I don't know, that would be at the very bottom of my list of volcanoes in the world to seek out in order to melt the one ring in. Um, rather, Gandalf makes it sound like it's, there's, there's, that there's a magical effect here. Um, he, even when he's talking about the dragons, uh, you know, it's like, you know, maybe, you know, is it, uh, dragon fire could, could melt, uh, could destroy rings. Um, but again, that seems to be more a reflection of the power of the dragon than merely the quantity of heat that that dragon could generate, you know, had the power to generate. And, um, uh, and, and of, and of course, you know, he mentions, nor was there ever any dragon who could, me- who, who could, uh, who could melt the one ring, um, that it has to go to the fires in which it was forged. That it seems to be about the severing of the connection with Sauron and, and Sauron's own, um, magic connected with its craftsmanship and connected with, you know, the Samoth Naur with the forges that he made, which seems to be the, uh, um, the, the, the important thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, interesting. Dan, thinking of the the Valar and the Eagles thing, said uh, that it's it's in part a traditional Germanic thing. There's no honor in asking higher powers to solve a problem you're afraid to take care of yourself. Um, yeah, I mean they don't like Elrond and Gandalf don't talk that way exactly. I mean they don't speak like yes, we could send it overseas, but there is small honor in that. Um, uh, but I mean you're right in a general way. That is that 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 overall pattern still does seem to be seem to be in place. If anything, that pattern seems to be sort of uh, um, kind of ordained one step sort of higher up there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, okay, good. just looking over questions here. Some of those I might uh, come back to. Yeah, um, yeah Verdana, you're right. Uh, uh, Verdana Gardner is uh, pointing out that, you know, put it, bringing it back to the forges in which it was made um, makes the act more an act of unmaking than an act of destruction. Um, I think that's a really fruitful distinction, actually. Um, it's not only any... Um, it's not that it merely needs to be destroyed and any fire above a certain threshold is capable of destroying it. Um, but that does seem to me a good way of thinking of it, that it needs it needs unmaking. Um uh, yeah, good. Now, um, okay, so anyway, uh, so that's my, the first, the first question that I wanted to just kind of get out of the way as we approach the, 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 the cracks of doom. Make sure that that wasn't on anybody's radar screen, uh, as we move forward. The second question, though, um, which is even more pertinent to the things that I wanna, that I wanna focus on, um, is, uh, uh, the, is, the question of why doesn't Sauron detect the ring approaching? You know, that is, of all the, um, of all the possibilities that could happen, you know, what, like what, the things that could go wrong, why are they not worried about that? You know, why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't, um, um, why doesn't Sauron just hear them, right? Or, you know, sense them in some sense? I mean, cause there's some reason to, to think that, I mean, you know, Strider says in The Fellowship of the Ring that the wraiths can sense the presence of the ring, so surely Sauron can sense it more, right? How is it that Sauron remains unaware um, of, uh, of the approach of the ring? And my answer to that question is that I think the situation is a lot more complicated uh, than that. Um, and it's more complicated in a couple different ways. One is that I'm not sure the ring sort of works quite that way, that it's quite as simple as that. Um, but the second part of it is Frodo's relationship to the ring, which I think, um, at least in my reading of, of Frodo taking the ring to Mount Doom, I think that a lot of people underestimate what Frodo actually does, uh, with the ring and for the ring. Um, and I, I'll try to explain what I mean. But first, let me start off talking about the nature of the ring. So, so what is the ring exactly? Well, okay, the ring we're told contains a part of Sauron's power, um, and the part of his power, you know, the, the thing that the ring does, um, is gives the power to dominate others. We're told that he forged this ring in order to give him this a sort of lever, um, to, uh, to, to be able to, to, to control, to dominate the, the elven rings. You know, all of the ring of power, all of the other rings of power, um, that had been made of which the three elf rings were the greatest. Um, so again, it's all about the will to dominate others. That is the purpose for which it was made. That is why he put a large part of the power that was native to him within the ring of power. 
So the reason I, I review this is because, you know, to me, one of the really big questions and, and something which I think is kind of an open question, but um, uh, is to me the question of does the ring think? To what extent is the ring itself sentient? Does it think? Does it choose? Does it reason? Um, and, and uh, you know, the evidence on this is, you know, there's, I think you could make out a case that it does. I think not. I think it probably doesn't actually think and plan. Um, but it's not 100% clear. I'd be, I'd, I'd be open to arguments in the other direction, but I kind of don't think it does. Um, it does seem to have a kind of awareness of what's around it, right? We hear, um, like Gandalf, for instance, making references to the idea, you know, th- that idea that Gandalf says in chapter two, in, in the Shadows of the Past chapter, when he says that, you know, the ring left Gollum, right? The ring left him. Makes it sound like the ring has volition, like it has will and made a choice, right? You know, it's the, the, the ring has been hanging out with Gollum for 500 years. And then it's like, I'm out of here. This is, this is lame, right? Um, that would, that would sort of, to think about it that way, it makes it seem like, um, the, the ring is itself conscious and aware of what's going on. Um, again, I do think it's aware to some extent, but based on everything else that we see about it, I really don't think that it is quite as, quite as aware or conscious as that one reference might kind of make it sound. I mean, it seems to affect people in certain ways, right? We, and we can see this by seeing the, the reaction that it has. I love the subtlety with which Tolkien depicts this, right? We don't have the ring, like, speaking in people's minds, right? We never get a dialogue between somebody and the ring. Um, we don't have it existing as this kind of awareness and consciousness that is speaking to you and tempting to, um, you know, tempting to, um, you know, sort of seduce people or, 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 uh, or corrupt people. And it, it, it's not that overt, right? Rather, it's simply, um, uh, rather, it's simply, um, a question of, of the way, the thought patterns of the people who are under its influence. And we can see this sort of pretty clear pattern emerging. Right. Um, and that is we see people when people are kind of under the influence of the ring, um, we see them voicing um, you know, a desire for power, a desire for self-preservation. That is for th- for thoughts that are both focused primarily inwards on themselves and thoughts that are also connected with exerting power over others, sometimes benevolently, right? Um, like Boromir and his desire to set himself up uh, as a king, you know, uh, uh, benevolent and wise. Um, he's going to form a, an alliance and conquer evil, and that's going to be great. Um, but his own glory is clearly being served here. He is the one who is in charge of all these things. Um, at the same time, we have, uh, even even like in Sam's little ring-induced monologue, right, when he's on the edge of Mordor, um, you know, and he's having his thoughts about turning all of Mordor into a garden. Again, it's about his own power, right? I mean, Sam's little, you know, sort of power fantasy is very charming in, you know, in sort of a humble and Gamgean way, but nevertheless, it's still an exertion of power, right? I'm going to take this realm, and I'm going to remake it 
after my own desires, right? I'm going to, I'm going to make it do what I please. Now, of course, what Sam pleases is so much more attractive than what Sauron pleases. But nevertheless, it's still that exertion of will, that exertion of his own, um, what he wants to see and conforming other things to that will. Um, so, um, so that's, that's how we, that's the pattern that we see in how the ring affects people. Um, usually it's, it's, it, we see it generally affecting the people who have it. We can also see it affecting the people who are near it and who are thinking about it. Um, it seems to influence those who are focused on it, right? We see it influence, um, we see it influence Boromir, of course, and we see it influence Gollum, um, even in ways which seem to be contrary to the ways in which Gollum was influenced by it before, um, when he owned it, um, earlier on. And I'm thinking, of course, of the, um, that time when, um, Sam is overhearing, um, uh, Gollum before the Black Gate, you know, right between the Dead Marshes and the Black Gate, um, when, uh, you know, when Gollum is, is imagining him getting the precious back and becoming powerful and, um, being called Gollum the Great and eating fish from the sea, uh, and all that, that, passage um so um so anyway so so this is this this is the way this is the pattern that we see the ring affecting people and of course it fits it makes perfect sense right um that is to say we know that this is what the ring does the ring's job is to uh to assist its possessor in dominating the wills of others that's that's what it was designed it is essentially a machine designed to accomplish that end um I, d- I very much doubt that the ring sees what it is doing. If it were sentient, I doubt it would see what it is doing as, as temptation or corruption. Um, it's just, that's what it does, right? It was, its conception was evil, uh, to, to, to subordinate the wills of others. Um, it's, it's, con- it's design is fundamentally selfish and self-serving. I wish to elevate my own power over others. Um, so that's, um, uh, that's, that's, that's what we see it doing. And it does this in, in my, in, in a subtle way, but also it seems to me in a sort of a sufficiently mechanical way that I don't think we necessarily need to see this as the ring, you know, sort of thinking and scheming and attempting to manipulate people. Exactly. Um, I just don't see any reason that it, uh, um, to, to, to think that it really does that. Um, now, uh, Verdina asks a great question. What about Faramir? Was he not tempted by power? Um, well, no. He doesn't seem to be tempted by power. Um, you'll notice that even Sam is tempted in a way which Faramir isn't. Now, it's hard because, uh, on the one hand, it's possible that Faramir doesn't, simply doesn't utter his monologue allowed. If he does have a monologue which he rejects, you know, Sam rejects re- rejects the ring-induced monologue, right? He he, he doesn't accept um, uh, what uh, the ring is offering him. Um, but we still hear the temptation, right? Because the narrative is following Sam's point of view at that moment. We never get a Faramir point of view stretch of narrative. So for all we know, um, you know, Faramir was tempted. You know, had a a, a, a ring-induced chain of thought, um, you know, which, you know, might have been kind of like Boromir's, I don't know. We know, obviously, he didn't 
succumb to that temptation in the way that Boromir did. Um, but we don't really get a chance to say, to hear him say it aloud. So, uh, but nevertheless, it makes sense, um, that Faramir would be less, um, uh, less temptable by the ring in this way, um, less susceptible to the ring because of the much more thorough selflessness of his character, his description, his explanation for why he wouldn't take it, even if he found it by the highway, um, is pretty... I mean, his view of Gondor um, and of his own role in Gondor is uh, uh, much, so much more humble than Boromir's. Um, he is... Uh, um, he is... He's not... Um, Focused on his own glory in the triumph of Gondor, he's focused on Gondor. It's on the you know the city of 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 the Numenorians itself. He wants its glory, and his own glory is not even really a primary part of that. Um, so I you know that I think is a is is it shows his mindset is fundamentally different. Boromir is susceptible. Because although he does seek the well-being of his people and of his city, he also seeks, in Faramir's words, his own glory thereby. And that is where, uh, that's what seems to make him susceptible in that way. Um, okay, so, so, so point one, the ring is not scheming, so there's no reason to think that the ring is sending out, like, psychic messages to Sauron, you know, sort of waving its immaterial, figuratively waving its arms and saying, hey, Sauron, I'm over here. Um, the ring doesn't necessarily do that. Um, it does seem to have an affinity with Sauron, that is, Sauron is putting forth his will to try to find the ring, and the time in which he does that is the time in which the ring leaves Gollum, and Gandalf does not believe that that's a coincidence. Um, so we do see some kind of connection there, but it's not just as simple as, you know, Sauron having some kind of, like, <clears throat> you know, uh, an Air Force radar screen with a swirly line which bleeps whenever the ring, you know, is on it. I mean, it's it's not, he's just not able, um, he's just not able to do that. Um, and, uh, so, 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 okay, so that's, that's one thing. Another thing to, one, one last thing to point out about the nature of the ring. Um, although it does have an affinity with Sauron, I think it's a mistake to think of the ring as loyal to Sauron. And this is one of the ways in which I think, um, the, uh, this is one of the ways in which I think the films really, um, Made a mistake. I, I really disagree. I, I really dislike this one element of the films. And there's in the films they keep talking as if Sauron is literally the only one who could make the ring work. You know, like oh, we can't claim it ourselves because it's no good, right? It only works for Sauron. Um, and in the books, that is emphatically not true. Of course, we know that many people could um, could make it work. Um, and in fact, it's pretty clear that um, that the ring is perfectly willing to set up any number of people in Sauron's place, right? So although it has an affinity with Sauron, it's not loyal to him in that way. It's not like a double agent sort of scheming, uh, you know, trying to undermine the good guys from within. Um, if Gandalf claimed it, or Elrond claimed it, or Goadriel claimed it, he would... They, you know, the, the, the ring would cheerfully give them the power to dominate others, and, and would... Um, 
you know, would definitely, um, you know, replace the, the, you know, Sauron, you know, in, it, you know, the, you ask the ring, like, hey, uh, uh, instead of a dark lord, uh, would you like a queen? The ring would be like, yeah, sure, that's fine with me, right? So, um, so again, I, 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 the ring doesn't seem to have even that much personality, I think. Um, and of course, in the end, the ring itself undoes itself, right? The ring is, uh, um, the, 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 the what, what the ring does, what the ring is, is what leads to its destruction, right? What is it that leads Gollum to do what he does? Why does Gollum betray Frodo? Why does, you know, why, why does Gollum seize the ring? Because he's driven by that, you know, that selfish desire that, you know, it's it, because Frodo and Gollum are both under the influence of the ring and acting as the ring would lead them to act, um, you know, for that reason, they, uh, the, the ring is destroyed, right? So, um, and that seems to be part of a much larger, uh, and observable pattern in Tolkien's world that evil is itself fundamentally self-destructive. Um, now, but that's only part of it. So I say part of the reason why I think, um, it's not so simple. The question is not so simple as, um, you know, why doesn't, uh, you know, Sauron kind of detect the presence of the ring, like he has some kind of, you know, scanner or detector for it. Um, part of that is because of the nature of the ring, as I'm saying, it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it's, it's not trying to get away. It's not trying to signal to him. It's not wanting him to win even necessarily. But the other thing is Frodo's role, as I said. Um, it's, we can kind of, I think, get into the habit of looking at Frodo carrying the ring, and you think about what happens to Frodo, right? Um, how traumatized Frodo becomes um, by uh, by the ring and by carrying the ring. Um, and uh, this is... Um, it's easy to look at that as, like, the equivalent of basically Frodo carrying some, like, radioactive thing, right? Like, he's carrying this... This, uh, uh, this really dangerous, poisonous thing which is hurting him, which it's inflicting damage upon him as he carries it. Um, you know, so even if we think of the ring not as scheming, but as inert, that might be kind of the model that we have, that it's damaging him in this way, but he's kind of, you know, sort of trying to, to, to kind of suck it up as he goes through. And that basically, what Frodo's challenge, Frodo's burden as he goes across Mordor, <clears throat> is fundamentally one of one of endurance. Endurance of the will, yes, to forbear the ring, you know, to use the phrase from the book, that is, not to claim it, not to it, to take it as, as his own. He's, he's gotta not claim it. Um, he's gotta carry on. He's gotta remain committed to traveling across Mordor and going to the cracks of doom and destroying it. Um, but, but there's also, you know, there's, there's just like physical burden that, that he's under. Um, I think that we can see some other things involved. It's, it's, there's more to it than just that. Let me, um, let me read to you a couple very brief passages. Um, first is actually has nothing to do with Frodo, uh, in Mordor directly, um, but with Galadriel. Um, this is after the Mirror of Galadriel when Frodo sees the eye. Um, I just wanted to remind you about what um, Galadriel says about that. She says, I know what it was that you last saw, for that is also in my mind. 
So she has the eye of Sauron, the, you know, the flaming eye that Frodo sees. She says that she sees that as well. Now remember, that sense of the eye searching for him is the thing that Frodo keeps describing. You know, it's one of the things that he says is, you know, a, a central part of his very bad experience going across, um, going across Mordor. Anyway, she says, she goes on, but do, do not be afraid, but do not think that only by singing amid the trees, nor even by the slender arrows of elven bows, is this land of, Lo- of Lothlorien maintained and defended against its enemy. I say to you, Frodo, that even as I speak to you, I perceive the Dark Lord and know his mind, or all of his mind that concerns the elves, and he gropes ever to see me and my thought, but still the door is closed." She lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands towards the east in a gesture of rejection and denial. So, Galadriel is experiencing a a, a struggle, a sort of a mental and spiritual struggle, a struggle of the will with Sauron, where he is trying to probe her mind, and she is rejecting him and keeping him out and deflecting him. Um, that, I think, is a really important thing to remember when we get to Frodo uh, in uh, in Mordor. Jumping ahead now to the return of the king. Um, so we have, um, um, let's see, um, make sure I'm on the right page here. Okay. Um, look at the description. Okay, so this is here. The, um, I'm going to read another little passage here. Um, Anxiously, Sam, oh, say, hang on. Sam guessed that among all their pains, Frodo bore the worst, the growing weight of the ring, a burden on the body and a torment to his mind. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward off a blow, or to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look in them. And sometimes his right hand would creep to his breast, clutching, and then slowly, as the will recovered mastery, it would be withdrawn. Now, it's easy to focus on that second part, right? That, we, that is, we know that a central part of Frodo's struggle as he's crossing Mount Doom is resisting the temptation to claim the ring. So that business about, like, his hand going up towards the ring and him, his own will reasserting itself and forcing it down, that's what seems to be at stake there. But what interests me here in particular is the earlier part. Anxiously, Sam had noted how his master's left hand would often be raised as if to ward off a blow or to screen his shrinking eyes from a dreadful eye that sought to look in them. See the similarity between what Frodo is doing here and what Goadriel described, and even sort of the gesture that she makes, right? Um, Frodo is holding up his arms as if to ward off a blow, and what Presumably, this is the gaze of the eye, right? Or to shoot, to, to hide from the eye that he's doing there. Um, thinking of Goadriel's speech there that I just read, you know, think not that, you know, merely by singing under the trees or by the slender arrows of elf bows is Lothlorien defended, right? There's more to the defenses of Lothlorien than that, much more. The primary defense of Lothlorien is the will of Galadriel, who, who guards it from the thought, who, who rejects the thought of Sauron and shields Lothlorien from Sauron's attention, from his will. I would say similarly, yeah, elf cloaks are really not, you know, think not that only by, uh, super camouflage elf cloaks and by, you know, the stalwart guidance of, of, of Sam and a little bit of luck, 
um, are Frodo and Sam concealed from the eyes of Sauron. Um, it's not that their secrecy does not depend on merely how well they blend into the background, but that Frodo's will seems to be engaged in two directions, judging from this, judging from this description here. His will both inward to resist the ring, but also outward to, to sort of shield himself and, I believe, the ring and its presence from Sauron himself. Um, that he feels that, it, remember also when, when Frodo was kind of confronted on Amon Hen, when he's uh, on the seat of seeing and he's looking out, um, and the will of Sauron is coming towards him, right? Um, and, and bearing down on him, he, resi- he takes off the ring, right? Doesn't reveal himself to Sauron, doesn't allow Sauron to see him in that moment. Um, but I think as he's further on in his journey, and as he is closer and closer, that same scrutiny that he felt coming across the river towards him when he was on Amon Hen is near all the time. And that he is choosing to resist it. That he is choosing to deflect it. Because he is the master of the precious right now. He is the, and remember that phrase is even used by Tolkien in The Hobbit. Um, Remember uh, when, right after Bilbo escapes from Gollum, he's jumped over Gollum, and he's about to go out and squeeze through and lose his buttons on the goblin doorstep. Um, uh, his buttons, which have been so thoughtfully retrieved uh, by so many players in Goblin Town, uh, in, in, in uh, Misty Mountain, I'm sure many of you uh, have, uh, have uh, collected Bilbo's buttons for him, which was very thoughtful. Um, but... Right before he does that, remember there's that reference to um, the ring, um, you know, playing a final trick uh, before it took a new master. Remember that? Um, that that's a that's a late edition. That phrase is not in the early edition. The, you know, the the, the 1937 edition. Um, it's a post Lord of the Rings construction. Um, you know, part of the later editing of the Hobbit to bring it into line with the Lord of the Rings. Um, so it's a Lord. Of, that that line is a Lord of the Rings era line, even though it's in the Hobbit. Um, so this idea of the ring taking a new master, like I said, it's not loyal to Sauron. Um, if, uh, if, if, you know, if Frodo had the will and the chops to take over Sauron's place, the ring wouldn't care. Um, he is the ring bearer. He has the ring. Um, and his role, his choice, why, what he took on himself when he became the ring bearer, um, was to, con- to conceal the ring from Sauron. And he ap- appears to continue to, uh, uh, to set his will to reject Sauron and to deflect his gaze. And I think that that is, that is, that is literally happening here. Um, look at the, his words, and this is of course a well-known speech that he makes, um, to, uh, uh, to Frodo when, uh, or to Sam rather, when Sam is just, you know, asking if he, if he remembers the, the rabbit stew that he cooked, and Sam says that he's afraid not. Um, he, he, he knows that these things happen, but he can't see them, right? No, no taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam. Um, think of the, lo- of the words of the Nazgul to Eowyn, right? What he threatened, uh, to do to her. Um, uh, uh, that's much like what Frodo describes in himself. I am naked in the dark, Sam, and there is no veil between me and the wheel of fire. I begin to see it even with my waking eyes, and all else fades. Um, now, the wheel of fire is a really interesting um, image. It's associated with the ring, right? That's why it's a wheel, but with the fire, it's also associated with um, 
with Sauron himself as well. Um, so uh, I, I think there's um, it, it's kind of an interesting combination there. Um, the wheel of fire is at his own breast, right? It's hanging, around, but the wheel of fire that he sees with his waking mind, um, you know, with his waking eyes. Is, uh, is, is the gaze of Sauron, so the eye of Sauron, which is looming down on him, um, and, and searching for him, but again, which he, which he deflects. And so Frodo's will, therefore, I think, is triumphs, not only to refuse to take the ring, but even to prevent, um, uh, uh, but even to prevent, um, uh, Sauron's detection. I think that his will plays an important role in Sauron not finding them as they're crossing towards Mount Doom. Um, you know, Sam guides them and, and, uh, pushes them along and carries Frodo at the end. Um, but Frodo is basically securing their, uh, their success. Um, but of course, crushingly, um, Frodo fails, right? Um, he's, he doesn't, in the end, he doesn't succeed all the way through. He succeeds up to the end and then fails. Um, at the last minute, he falls to the temptation and gives in. Um, and, you know, a lot of people don't like to think about what happened at the Crack of Doom as failure, but it is failure. Um, and Tolkien, his own commentary on this, uh, you know, in, in his own letters, um, is pretty clear about this, pretty emphatic about that. Um, and, you know, in what way does he fail? Like, what does he actually do? You look at his actual words um, at the Cracks of Doom. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment many things happened. Indeed, many things do happen at that moment. Um, Frodo claims the ring for himself. He asserts power over it, and in doing so, he asserts himself. Right Again, he falls prey to exactly what the ring has been trying to do, what we've seen it do to everybody else. He chooses himself instead of the mission. He was on this self-sacrificial quest right um, to choose to deny himself uh, and to do this thing to bring the ring to destruction uh, even at you know great cost to himself and he succeeds for 99% of the journey and then fails at the very end he sets himself up as the master we you know this this recalls um, this recalls Isildur of course and his claiming of the ring um, you know his falling prey to that same temptation. You know, I do not now do choose to do what I came here to do. There's a sense in which that's true of Isildur as well, right? He came to destroy Sauron and overthrow him, but in the end, instead of bringing Sauron low, he chooses not to do that deed, um, and he keeps the ring for himself. Frodo's fall is, in a sense, even worse than Isildur's, because Frodo knows what's at stake perhaps more than Isildur does. Um, the way he talks about it uh, in, you know, the, the note that Gandalf found and reads to the council or quotes to the council, um, is, uh, you know, makes it sound like he, he believes it's just an heirloom and that it's, you know, we can see him rationalizing, certainly. Um, but nevertheless, Frodo, you know, Isildur could perhaps be forgiven for thinking, well, you know, 
we just overthrew Sauron. I just, I just, I just killed Sauron and looted his corpse. So I'm the winner here, right? Um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's, there's no, there's no question about that. Um, whereas Frodo knows if he doesn't destroy the ring, it was all for nothing and everything fails. Um, but when Frodo claims the ring for himself, this is not just a, I've decided I'm not going to throw the ring in the fire. I'm going to, I'm going to just stop the quest. He turns away from it. He claims it for himself. He sets himself up as a rival to Sauron. Um, now, I don't think Frodo in the end is going to be a really effective rival against Sauron, but I also don't want to simply laugh that off, as it's kind of tempting to do, actually. Um, remember Saruman's words to Frodo, you have grown, halfling, right? Frodo has grown. Um, remember what Galadriel says when he asks that really sort of charming and innocent-sounding question? of Goadriel, and he says, hey, uh, I'm permitted to wear the One Ring, but I've never seen other people's thoughts, or like, you know, I, you know I've, uh, I've totally not, you know, I have no perspective on this whole, like, uh, you know, power for dominion that the ring is supposed to do. It just kind of makes me invisible, right? It seems kind of lame compared to what you guys keep talking about. And remember what Goadriel says, and he says, you know, I, I've never tried to perceive the thought, I've never been able to perceive the thoughts of others or anything. Um, do you remember what Goadriel says? She says, you haven't tried. Don't try. Notice, she doesn't say, you can't. No, she says, you haven't tried to. We won't know if you could or not until you do try, though she does recommend that he not try, right? Um, but again, though, she never says, like, that is an impossibility for you, because it's not a complete impossibility for him, it seems. It's an unlikeliness, and certainly a bad idea, um, but she doesn't completely shoot down the prospect. Um, this... However, leads me to, um, well, and I'm going to come back to Frodo's failure for a minute. I know his, as I said, I know his failure might seem kind of hard to take. Tolkien, in his own commentary on this, talked about this sort of dreadful balance that Frodo represents. That Frodo was the perfect ring bearer. Nobody else could have done what Frodo did. Um, he succeeded, but, you know, like the, the bad news is he failed. The good news is, uh, he failed less badly than anybody else would have failed in taking the ring to Mount Doom. Um, because of this sort of dreadful balance. Had he been greater than he was, had he been more powerful, um, he would not have been able to resist the temptation. It was only his own humility, his own self-sacrifice, which led him to be able, which enabled him to, um, to resist the power of the ring as long as he did. Um, but, and it, it's only because he was as powerful as he was that he was enabled to succeed. Had he been weaker, he also would have failed. So he had just enough strength, but not too much strength, in order to be able to go as far as he did. But in the end, even that, nobody could have succeeded in their own strength in this quest. And um, and Tolkien, in his, in his letters, is pretty clear about that. Um, because in the end, the destruction of the Ring at Mount Doom is not about heroism. It's about grace. Um, in the end, it's a miracle um, that, you know, that it is enabled to happen. Um, Tolkien talks about uh, Frodo's irrational pity for Gollum. You know, that Frodo had pity on Gollum when, when, when Sam didn't tell him and anybody else could have told him that it was a really bad idea. Gollum is totally going to betray you. It is foolish 
to not only let him live, but to follow after him. Um, killing him is obviously the move here. But he doesn't, and he lets him live. Um, and this is one thing, you know, I was reflecting on this a little bit when I was watching the movies again recently, and it was the first time I'd seen the movies in several years, so it was, they were kind of hitting me almost anew here. Um, and uh, and when I saw it, the thing I was really struck by, I like what the films do with the way that Frodo identifies with Gollum. Um, you know, the whole thing that he does where he's like, you know... Uh, uh, I have to believe that Gollum can come back, right? I, I, I like that. I'm very interested in that. Um, I think it's a really cool thing that they do. But but it also kind of misses the point in an important way. It rather makes a very different point from the book. That is, the film sort of suggests Frodo's interest in Gollum is all about himself, right? That he's invested in Gollum because he's worried about his own fate. And he identifies with Gollum, and so therefore needs to be able to believe that Gollum can come back so that he can have any hope for himself. But it's not really about Gollum, per se. It's about himself, primarily. Um, whereas the books say almost exactly the opposite to that. That his pity for Gollum is simply having pity on Gollum like Bilbo did, perceiving Gollum. And, you know, seeing his suffering, seeing how wretched and miserable he is, and hoping that he might be redeemed um, in believing that, as Gandalf says, there is not no hope of Gollum's amendment. Um, and that is what saves everything. You know, that, that in the end, it works out that his pity, foolish as it was from one perspective, um, within the bigger framework, works. In the end, Frodo, though he is led into temptation, is delivered from evil. Um, of course, you'll notice the heavily weighted language I'm using there uh, in quoting the end of the Lord's Prayer. That's Tolkien's quotation. He quoted the, that line several times in connection with this, in, in explaining Frodo's failure uh, and what happens at the end. This question of being led into temptation um, is how he, how he characterized this, but of course pointing out that in the end he is delivered from evil. So what's Sauron's perspective? <clears throat> what's going on with Sauron? Um, I was going to say in the end, of course, the decision is the ultimate decision is finally taken out of uh, taken out of Frodo's hands. But of course, it's only partially true. Uh, in that part of his hands goes with the decision. But anyway, Sauron, <clears throat> Sauron's perspective. Let's look at uh, let's look at the end. And I want to read this in part just because I love this passage so much. I love uh, this is one of my favorite pieces of of Tolkien high rhetoric when he really gets his momentum going at a crucial moment. And far away, as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samoth Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power in Barad-dûr was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows looked across the plain to the door that he had made and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a vast black smoke to choke him, for he knew his deadly peril and the thread upon which his doom now hung. You'll notice that Tolkien is here, as he does in so many other places. He's, he's, he slips into, um, the technical term for it is a paratactic style, that is, series of simple sentences linked together by conjunctions. Notice how all of that, even, you know, whether there's a period or not is kind of irrelevant because this, this style predates punctuation. It was a way to indicate the rhythm of thing, of, of, of prose. 
uh, to people who weren't primarily reading it, but were listening to it. Um, so, you know, all that's, you know, and the Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows, and the magnitude of his own folly, and all the devices of his enemies. Then his wrath blazed, but his fear rose, for now he knew. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. How, the way that that rolls along, and the momentum that it builds over the course of the paragraph. Uh, Tolkien's so good at that. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran, his slaves quailed, and his armies halted, and his captain suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry in a last desperate race, there flew, faster than the winds, the Nazgul, the ringwraiths, and with a storm of wings they hurtled southwards to Mount Doom. Okay, so what's Sauron thinking? What goes on in Sauron's mind here? A couple things that I would want to point out. So, he's afraid, right? Is he... What's he afraid of? How is he afraid? Why is he afraid? Is he afraid of Frodo? Like, Frodo has claimed the ring and said, I am the master, the, the ring is mine. Um, you know, are we to think that, uh, are we to think that Frodo, that, that the, you know, the Sauron is there being like, what? Oh no! Fro not Frodo! Oh no! I don't think so. Um, uh, that seems unlikely. And, uh, you know, but I think there's any, I mean, when you look at back at the beginning of the passage that I, that I just read, um, as Frodo put on the ring, the power in Barad-dûr was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. Um, notice in in the sequence, the logic of the sentences that um, that Tolkien makes here. Um, the Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye piercing all shadows looked across the plain. That comes after the trembling and the shaking of the previous, the power being shaken and the tower trembling. That is, it seems that as soon as Frodo puts on the ring and claims it for his own, the tower of the entire tower of Barad-dûr trembles. Now we could say this is Sauron's fear, right? It's trembling with Sauron's fear that the ring is about to be destroyed. That's obviously his primary concern. But I'm not sure. The sequence of the lines suggests to me that Frodo's very claiming of the ring has an impact on Sauron, that Sauron feels merely the fact that someone else has claimed the ring and set himself up as a rival to Sauron. Again, do I think Frodo could hold out against Sauron? No, I don't think there's really going to be a big power struggle between Frodo and Sauron had Gollum not intervened. Um, but I don't think that's, that Frodo's claim is entirely negligent um, or completely ignored by Sauron. I think that he does feel it. He is aware of the fact Someone else has just, has claimed, it's not like when Gollum had it before. It's not like when Bilbo had it before. Both of them had it before, but they didn't claim it, and they did not put it on knowing what it was. Thinking again, back to Goadriel's words, right, when she says, you haven't tried, Frodo's trying now, right? He is, uh, he is putting it on, knowing what it is, doing what it's supposed to do, trying to become the master, and Sauron is affected by that. Um, so I think that there's an interesting element there. But, of course, the main thing, what Sauron is mostly thinking at the Cracks of Doom, is he his worldview just got widened a little bit, uh, I would say. Um, that is, 
we see he only now understands, right? Suddenly, you know, he he he. So the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Now, again, it's easy to look at this passage and say, "Man, but like, how stupid could Sauron be?" I mean, honestly, he's he's uh, like he doesn't he honestly doesn't suspect that uh, they're gonna destroy the ring. No. He doesn't suspect that they're going to destroy the ring. Um, they have successfully and completely bamboozled him. How? Why? Because he's dumb? No. As Gandalf says, he's very wise, right? So why did he do such a foolish thing if he was so wise? Um, well, as we talked about, I'm talking about the nature of the ring and what the ring does. He is proud, self-regarding. Um, and his own evil, his own inward focus, his own desire for power blinds and disables him. I mean, wisdom is all about your point of view. You know, you can, uh, you can be wise, but not necessarily applying that wisdom within a proper framework, right? If you have a narrow view of things, you can act with great, you know, with great cunning and with great wisdom. And yet do something that is foolish because your parameters are not really wide enough. Um, Sauron never imagined that anybody having the ring would seek to destroy it. This is what Gandalf was explaining, um, at the, the last debate before they set out for the Black Gates. Um, there is, there is no, he would never in a million years do anything that self-sacrificing. And he can't understand anybody who would. So all of his calculations are taking for granted that one basic thing. That obviously, the only question is, maybe they're just gonna try to hide it from me. Maybe they're gonna try to, um, maybe they're gonna try to, to, to use it against me. Probably that's what they're gonna do, right? Um, and you know, you can ask, like, did he never suspect? Right? Did he never? I mean, like I thought he was tracking them, right? Like he knew that the ring was coming south and everything. What did he think? Well, he thought they were bringing it to Minas Tirith, right? He thought they were coming down to be in a position to to wield it against him for somebody to step forth. Um, this is clearly, you know, this is exactly what Aragorn was playing off of when he showed himself uh, to Sauron in the in in the in the Palantir. Is to, you know for for uh, for Aragorn to say, hey. I have the wherewithal to oppose you. <clears throat> and now we know that, I mean, Gandalf says the whole point of their marching on the Black Gate is to try to convince Sauron that he's right, that Aragorn has claimed the ring, and that now Aragorn is setting, is coming in to fight against Sauron using the power of the ring against him. And Sauron seems really to believe that. Um, that's why Gandalf's wisdom is in the end superior wisdom to Sauron, because he sees the whole picture. Sauron doesn't see the whole picture. Why? Because Sauron is focused on himself and Gandalf is focused on others, right? You think of that, the speech that he makes about him, himself also being a steward, right? That as long as anything that grows or is fair can, you know, will survive, uh, this time, you know, then I will not consider, um, you know, that I have failed. He is, um, he is focused outwardly not on himself and not on his own glory. And so therefore he understands others in ways that Sauron just doesn't understand others because he judges everybody else by his own standard, as Gandalf explains. Um, 
And so this is why, again, this is why the stealth and the concealment and the deflection of Sauron's will is so crucial, because he they, they have to conceal from him um, that this is even a possibility, right? That the destruction of the ring is even on the table. And they succeed in doing that through the planning of the wise, and but, but primarily through Frodo's own choice. They succeed in doing that, and so he has no idea until the end. Now, then, when he sees him at Mount Doom, he realizes, first of all, yeah, Frodo's claiming the ring, but now he, he figures out, this is what they were doing all along. I can't believe it. They're going to try to destroy the ring. Even though, to us, it might seem like a pretty obvious thing to do. And thus, did weakness triumph over strength, and by grace, pity win over power. And that is the story that Tolkien wanted to tell rather than the quite silly one about the eagles flying over to Mordor. So, uh, I'll be happy to take any... I've been talking for a very long time now, and I'll be happy to take any uh, any questions that uh, uh, that people have. Um, uh, so I've got a couple questions that have come in uh, already. Um, Andrew Scorgi was asking, uh, what happened to Sauron in reality? Uh, we only ever see the castle crumble. Was he inside it when it fell down? Well, see, you know, Andrew... Sauron's connection with the physical world is is unusual anyway. Um, Gandalf, we talked about this last time, Gandalf has been incarnated. He's been put in a body. He's not just a physical manifestation of a spiritual being. Um, he is incarnated in a body and can die, as in fact he does die. Um, Sauron is not. Sauron is not connected to a body in the same way. Um, uh, Sauron is... Um, Sauron is also a Maiar, but he's, his, he, he takes a form. He's not capable. He lost one body. I mean, he was sitting on Numenor when it fell down into the abyss. And he recovered from that because his spirit fled from Numenor, uh, and came back to Middle Earth. He was inconvenienced by that, but he, what, well, he didn't die in the normal way of dying. Um, he seems to have been overcome and his physical body destroyed at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Again, I mean, people often overlook this, and this is, of course, a radical departure, um, uh, both in fact and in, uh, uh, and, and more in spirit in the movie, where, you know, Sauron is dominant and there's no way anybody could defeat him, and then Isildur just, like, manages to slash his fingers off, um, kind of by luck. But, uh, but that's not how it happens in the books. Um, Gilgalad and, and, uh, and Elendil and Elrond and Círdan and Isildur defeat him. They throw him down and in defeat cut the ring from his hand. So you've got a picture Isildur's foot on Sauron's neck as he is cutting the ring from, uh, from Sauron's body. He's, he's looting his corpse, as I said. But again, he's not dead in the traditional sense. Um, so does Sauron die? You know, does he, you know, is he killed when the, when Barad-dur collapses? No, no. Again, because he's not, uh, you know, that's not how he works. That's not the kind of being that he is. But the majority of his power is destroyed, and Gandalf says that he can never take shape again. He's never going to be able to rise again. So Sauron is still out there. You know, so, so, uh, you can imagine, for instance, um, Sauron 
Sauron might still be in the world today. Uh, he's uh, rather diminished. You know, he no, he no longer has the power to do anything other than, uh, you know, maybe lurk uh, in the closets of five-year-olds and give them creepy feelings at night or something. Um, uh, but uh, you know, so but he he's he's still around, but uh, but but very very weak. Um, so that's that's what happens to him, uh, so far as we know. But no, he's not. Uh, because he doesn't have a normal body and a normal life in that way, he's not one of the children of Iluvatar. He can't just uh, <clears throat> die in a in a in, in a mishap like that. Um, John uh, Lambert asks: uh, So we assume it was possible that Galadriel or Gandalf uh, could possibly defeat Sauron with the ring. Uh, it's just the end result would have been poor for Middle Earth. John, yes, that is exactly my own belief. Um, remember again: This is another interesting departure. Um, from the books by the films. Um, in the film, when Galadriel does her in place of the Dark Lord, you would have a queen! Right? And she goes, you know, the whole... They make it look like she's being, like, currently overwhelmed with the temptation, right? That that's a spontaneous speech that she's, you know, and she is here uttering her own secret desire, and then she pulls back from it, right, and succeeds in not giving in to that desire. That's not how it happens in the book. It's it's possible even to read the passage in the book that way, but I I I think it's pretty clear that that's not what's going on. She's talking to Frodo. Um, it's when Frodo says Frodo offers her the ring, you know, and Sam is like, "Hey, I think you'd be great. You should totally take it." Right? She is laying out for them. She's saying, "No, I'm not going to take it." She's already said no. Right? She said, "No, I'm not going to take it." And just FYI, here's what would happen. If I did, you know, in place of the of the Dark Lord, you would have a so you want to give me the ring, right? Are you sure that's what you want? Let me spell out for you what it would look like if you got what you were asking for right now. Um, you know, the Queen and I wouldn't be dark, but you know, and she goes on and explains. So she's totally in control. She's not having a spontaneous temptation moment at that time. She is spelling out for Frodo and Sam what it would look like if she did take the ring and overthrow Sauron. Um, she seems confident that she could, in fact, win. Um, and it seems to me very likely. I don't see any reason to think that with the power of the ring, um, Gandalf or Elrond or Galadriel could overthrow. Or Saruman. Saruman probably could have. I mean, his, his, like, you know, his move didn't work out, but it could have. I mean, had Saruman gotten the ring, could he have overcome Sauron? Maybe. Less confident in that. But possible. It's possible. I certainly think Galadriel could have done it. Um... Uh, yeah, well, I should, uh, I should, I should let you guys, I'll be back other times, we can talk about, we could talk about, a couple of people were trying to tempt me into, uh, uh, completely off-topic, uh, discussions, which I should probably resist the temptation to do. I, I think we should come back, I think we, if, if, if the Lonely Mountain Band will have us back, we should have an Ask Wigand Anything <laughs> at Ales and Tales sometime. An AWA? And then everybody can bring all their questions. Yeah, that an AWA ask we could anything. Yeah. That would be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, about lore. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, about lore. Yeah, like uh, uh, lore. um, uh, 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 Ring is 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 wanting me to talk about Tom Bombadil, for instance. I I'd, I'd love to do that, but I'm totally not going to get started talking about Tom. I'm not going to open that can of worms right now because it's a long discussion, and you guys have all been really, really patient. Um, but um now you and I need to you and I need to get our vocal cords going so we can sing happy birthday, right? 
Absolutely, yes. We are, of course, this is an auspicious occasion upon which we are, uh, we are gathered here. The seventh anniversary, seriously, the seventh anniversary of the Lonely Mountain Band kinship was amazing. Uh, you know, as, uh, as members of a kinship, which is not even seven months old, uh, you know, my, my hat is off to you. Of course, I've, I have been, uh, following, um, you know, the activity of, 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 uh, of John DiBartolo and, and, and other members of the Lonely Mountain Band for a while. I have, uh, I have been admirers of, 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 of all of yours from afar, uh, for, for many years. Um, but I am, uh, uh, I, I am, I am delighted, uh, and honored, uh, to be part of this August celebration. Not just of any anniversary, but the seventh anniversary. Seven being such an important number. Uh, that's very, very cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, exactly. Laura Burkholz was just reminding me. Uh, see, this shows how long I'd been putting off playing. Uh, they've been trying to, the, Members of the Lonely Mountain Man have been trying to lure me into the game for about seven years or so, uh, and uh, it, it, after six and a half, I finally, I finally gave in, uh, and I'm so glad that I did. Uh, but anyway, thank you all for having me, and again, I'm very honored, especially to be a guest on this occasion. Uh, I look forward to coming back. It would be fun to do uh, to do an AWA session. That would be fun. Uh, but uh, but anyway, thanks everybody for having me.